In this episode of Jim Questions Everything, I speak with Dr. Tracy Daniel Hardy, an education leader out of Gulfport, Mississippi. Now, as an African-American woman, Dr. Daniel Hardy doesn't fit the typical profile of a technology leader, but that's just one reason why this is not a typical conversation. Now, you know you can't go in there being the angry black woman. Like, you have to be careful because if they categorize you as the angry black woman, then they're not going to take you seriously. Then they're going to focus on your anger and how you are approaching it rather than what you're saying. You see, Tracy, an accomplished educator, speaker, and an author, has dealt with racism and sexism throughout her life. And just because she's accomplished doesn't mean she's free from the many isms that people of color confront on a daily basis. And perhaps it's because of her experiences that Tracy has stayed in the field of education. She knows how important it is to think of the generation that follows. It's always on her mind. Even when I'm up at two or three o'clock in the morning surfing social media, trying not to wake my husband, I'm still on as an educator. And what I find so inspiring about talking to Tracy is that despite the challenges, she continues to find hope. She's steadfast in her commitment to ensuring that hope stays present in her community. If I just up and leave, I'm leaving hope on the table, and I don't want to do that. I'm privileged to be able to address Dr. Daniel Hardy by her first name, Tracy. And I think you'll find it a privilege to learn about her and to learn from her over the next hour. So with that, here's Jim Questions Everything with Dr. Tracy Daniel Hardy. Welcome to another episode of Jim Questions Everything. I'm joined today by someone who, quite frankly, is out of my league on so many levels. Not only is she a veteran educator, she's got multiple advanced degrees, and she's just super smart. I'm joined by Dr. Tracy Daniel Hardy, who is of the Gulfport School District in Gulfport, Mississippi. And I'm really excited to talk to you today, uh, Tracy. Thanks for, thanks for joining me here. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I was actually looking around um, to see if there was somebody else in here that you might have been describing, <laughs> but it's just me. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, well, it's, it's just you, but it's, um, it's so much more than just you. And you know, that's funny. I, I hear this a lot from teachers in particular who say, oh, I'm just a teacher. And I find that to be kind of frustrating because I feel like, first off, teachers by and large are, are the most humble people that you'll, you'll ever meet. And you just set that up for me right there because you said, it's just me. But I can't think of another profession where from the minute you get out of the car to walk in school and then to the minute you, you know, leave the parking lot, you're on. I mean, there is no other profession other than education, where everyone's looking at you all the time. And it might be the little ones, it might be your colleagues, but you really can't misstep from the time you step on the property. So it always baffles the mind that people say, oh, I'm just a teacher. I just can't think of another profession. So anyway, I don't know where I'm oh, going If I that. may jump in right there, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like maybe your description minimized it a little bit. You said from the time you step on property, but it's from the time that you step out of the bed, you know, in the morning, you are on. And actually, even that may be an underrepresentation of it because I find that 
even when I'm up at two or three o'clock in the morning, surfing social media, trying not to wake my husband, I'm still on as an educator. Just last night, I'm looking at some wonderful things my former students uh, are doing. And it's amazing that I still feel the connection that I have. I still, it still takes me back to when they were in eighth grade and now she's doing tours in Africa and helping underrepresented and underserved populations. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that, but I realized that you are always on as an educator, you are always on. That's a really good point. I appreciate the pushback on that because it's true. You, you are always on and every educator I talk to is, is either in class or thinking about class. And so I think your statement is, is very fair. And you bring up another thing that I think is fascinating, which is once you've been a teacher to a, a kiddo of any age, you'll always have been that kiddo's teacher. And you just pointed out that you're looking at kids that used to be in your classroom and are now all over the world doing good things. And I'm sitting here thinking that doesn't really get talked about enough. Now I'm a parent. So once a parent, always a parent, but it's true. Once a teacher, always a teacher. And, you know, it's so interesting that, that most of my students, actually all of my students are grown, grown and then there's some with children. And it's like, you know, she was my teacher in eighth grade or she was my teacher in high school. And the kids look at me strangely, like, was my mom or dad, you know, that young? And how were they in <laughs> class? And so my husband tells me when we travel and we run into uh, people, he said, I watch grown men transform into that child in your class. He says, I see the transformation on their faces. And I'm like, I don't notice it because I guess I go automatically back to when they were sitting in class, you know, in the back of the room or on the side, you know, or sitting at the table, depending on what we were doing. Oh, it must be a, uh, just a wild ride. And mm -hmm. in much the same way that, you know, once a teacher, always a teacher, it's sort of like, well, once a student, always a student. Cause I I've seen former teachers either online or in person. And I do feel that sense that your husband's talking about where I revert back to <laughs> being that person's uh, student. And uh, let me tell you a, kind of a funny story. When we moved back to the area where my wife grew up, we were going to enroll our son in, in uh, kindergarten. And we found out it was uh, Mrs. B. Uh, it was her last year of teaching. And in Mrs. B's first year of teaching, she had my wife. Mm. as a kindergarten student. And so her first year was with my wife and her last year of teaching many years later was with my son. It was pretty That's fun. Cool. Yeah. And, cool. and it was, and she said, you know, I absolutely remember my wife's name, Sarah. I remember Sarah and I remember each of the girls uh, in her family. And that was, you know, 30 plus years later. But yeah. that's the thing you always remember. All of you teachers always remember. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Tracy, did you always want to be in education? How did you come to this life that is now truly lifelong? So I remember as a youngster playing school, we had this old chalkboard that I don't know where we got it from. It had this big giraffe on the side of it. It was just the classic chalkboard. And I love pulling it out and playing with it. And when I could get my brother to sit down for a little bit, that I would play school. And so I knew early on that I wanted to be a teacher. Then at some point in high school, I figured that I really liked accounting and I wanted to go into accounting or something in business. For some strange reason, 
I liked paperwork and all of that. And so when it was time to go to college, I had to make up my mind, like, am I going in education or am I going in business? And then I found that there was something that would give me the best of both worlds and I chose business education. And so that satisfied both passions that I thought I had. And I just, I just did it. And I don't regret doing it. I loved it. I have been a teacher. I have been a guidance counselor. I have been a technology trainer, instructional technology specialist, and now a director of technology. And I have to say that I have loved every road, you know, every piece of this journey. I, I think probably the most enjoyment I had was as a counselor because I could interact with the students differently. This role takes me out of direct contact with the students and I work more closely with adults on behalf of the students, for the students. And it's not quite as fun as it is working with the students, but um, it still gives me great gratification because I know what I'm doing is for the students. When I see them and they, what do you do? What do you do? I work for you. You're my boss. We're your boss. I'm like, yeah, you're my boss. Everything that I do is for you. Every decision that I make is for you. They're like, really? You've, you've seen... The, the workings of a school from so many different angles, from being a teach well, from being a student in your own right, of course, mm -hmm. but from being a teacher to a counselor to an instructional coach, now head of technology. And sometimes you're face to face with the kid. Other times you're working, you know, to empower the adults who serve those kids. And your journey is uh, powerful and important and complex. Let's just name something, which is the journey or the path that you took. If I had tried to take that same path, it'd be very different for me as a white male born in the Northeast with privilege. And I, I hope you'll indulge me in, in talking about that a little bit, because I have to imagine that there may have been some uh, biases along the way early on from your decision to join education and business together, then all the way through your career. And in some of your work, whether it's a published article in uh, technology and learning magazine, whether it's co-authoring a book, which I'd love to talk to you about more, and some of the interviews that I've watched, I find this comes up time and again. You've had to deal with isms your whole life. Would you mind talking about how you first dealt with those when you came of age to be a teacher to begin with, to be a black woman teacher? I'd love to hear more about that. I'm thinking about that. And if I had to go back to when I first began teaching, um, are actually teacher prep. I don't think that I was really aware of those isms, the racism, the sexism. And then when I began to teach my first year, of course it wasn't as easy as I thought, but I still don't remember dealing with racism and sexism because I think I was just green. I, I, I didn't know what to look for. There were things that caused me to pause and say, hmm, something's not right about that, but I didn't classify it. And so not until I got of age, I would notice things or hear things that caused me to pause, but I didn't label them. I didn't categorize them as maybe racism or sexism. It was just like, hmm, maybe they're kind of rude, or I'm not sure what they meant by that. 
I was still green and, and still naive, very much like I would say my parents still are. They're just, they just think everybody's good hearted and nobody's going to intentionally do anything wrong. And then uh, the longer I taught, maybe by the time I got to the high school, so I've been teaching almost 10 years then, when I realized that there are some patterns that I saw. I remember being asked by a white male colleague to answer questions on behalf of the entire black race. So he asked one question about why, why, do, why do the black kids do this? And I'm like, I don't know. Then he asked another question. And then I had to you know, finally tell him, I cannot be the mouthpiece for all black people. I cannot explain that. And so I start, I guess maybe that's when I started to recognize some things and I would run into issues where somebody may not have wanted to recognize me and my skill set. And if they happened to be of a different race, I just thought maybe they were rude. But then the patterns kept adding up and I had to place the ism where it belonged. And I, I, I did notice some things and then I had to, I didn't have to, but I, I stepped back and I started looking at myself and saying, is this really what it is? You know, am I being too sensitive about it? Is it really? And I'm like, but I'm noticing that other people who don't like, who don't look like me are not being treated that way, you know, by this person or by these individuals or that maybe the aggression was a little bit greater for me. And then I'm thinking like, is it my personality? you know, and then no. And so here we try not to talk about it, you know, especially not as out loud. You know, there may be a few girlfriends to say, did, did I just see that? Did that just happen? And um, they can confirm or deny it. You know, we tend to be real with each other. And then that has helped formulate a more definitive characterization of sexism or racism that we may have or I may have experience at work, whether it's from a parent, from a colleague or a supervisor or anything like that. You have me thinking about so many things. And one of my challenges in trying to address my view of the world is that I get caught up in, in a lot of things at once. So let's just ride this out a little bit because I heard a couple of things. You channeled your parents' energy. And I, I love that they, they view everyone by default as good hearted and maybe they weren't intentionally trying to do you wrong. But that doesn't matter at the end of the day, whether what the intent was. And that's something I've had to come to understand more of in talking with lots of colleagues about different aspects of work, whether it's privilege due to race or gender or socioeconomic status. Um, whether or not I intended to do harm is irrelevant. I should still be held accountable for having done that harm. But that's hard because <laughs> Meaning it's hard for someone in your position because you're already feeling like, am I, am I overly sensitive if I say something and that person doesn't accept the pushback and um, maybe because they're, they weren't intentional about it, it creates this schism. So was there a point at which you said, okay, <laughs> enough worrying about everyone's feelings. It's time to start talking about this. Yeah. There, there were some things that happened without talking about them directly, you know, personnel things. I had to call it like it is, you know, in my response to it, I had to call it like it 
like I saw it and I still see it that way and then give solid examples of the patterns. And I often tell people, I was speaking to a class of uh, Baylor University students the night before last, and I mentioned to them that, you know, one of my core values is compassion. They mentioned in my conversation that they could hear and see the compassion in me because I, I, I'm saying that not all the time, let me say, say this, sometimes people do things or say things or are a certain way as you mentioned, and they're not that way intentionally or are not aware that they are that way. And even for me, if you, you're telling me, you're describing something that I did and the intent that you thought I had, I need examples. I need you to be explicit for me before I can understand, you know, if I did that intentionally or not and how I can adjust. And so when I, put out those things. I wanted to make sure that I gave examples and show patterns, you know, of things that helped me get to the place, you know, where I was trying to call it what for what it was, you know, whether it was sexism or racism or, you know, just some bias that someone, you know, may have had. I needed to characterize that with patterns of behavior. Now, sometimes you can still be off with that, but I also understand that for some people, not until you call them on that and show them those patterns, they don't see that in themselves and they don't have a, an opportunity to, to grow, progress, or change from that. I think that we all have some biases and we all have some preferences for you know, how things are done or people who we deal with because they're more like us or different than us than um, uh, others are. And you may not be aware of it. And once you become aware of it, then you can make adjustments or stay the same. And so that's where the compassion comes in. Like if I'm telling you, you've mistreated somebody and you say, oh, that was not my intent, but then you keep treating them that way, then you intentionally at that point made a choice to mistreat someone because you've been told. And then there are other times where somebody actually wants to do better and, and they are very remorseful about, you know, something that they've done to hurt someone else. That's, that's really illuminating for me, both in, in terms of the compassionate approach, but also there's a, there's a kindness to your intolerance <laughs> for people who, once they've been told, continue to behave in a certain way. Because then it moves from theoretically unintentional to very specifically intentional. Look, I've told yes. you that what you're doing is harmful yes. uh, and that you're exhibiting racism and sexism. Yes. And so if you continue that, then you no longer have the benefit of being unintentional. It's yes. now very much intentional. I see that a lot. Here's the other thing that I just wanna acknowledge, which is true for uh, a lot of my friends who have to do the work. So I talk to my black colleagues in the industry and they talk to, they share with me the same experience, which is, you know, I had to find uh, what I had to find patterns and I had to find examples and I had to point them out and then I had to do it again. And I think what uh, frustrates me is that it, the burden's on you to do the work. Yes. And here's the other piece of the yeah. problem. You can't be angry about it. You, mm. you, okay. You can be angry about it, but you <laughs> cannot <a> <laughs> play anger about mm. it. That's the thing. 
if you display your anger about it, then it lessens how they value what you say. And so we say, now, you know, you can't go in there being the angry black woman. Like you have to be careful because if they categorize you as the angry black woman, then they're not going to take you seriously. Then they're going to focus on your anger and how you are approaching it rather than what you are saying. And so I think that's so unfair because there are things that are done to you that make you very, very angry. And then you have to deal with that first before dealing with the problem at hand. Right. It's true. Once again, the burden's on you to show it's up stronger. It's on me. You're not, it's not that you can't be angry. It's that they're not, the wording's so tricky on this, isn't it? I think you'll understand my, my intent when I say this, which is, you know, um, you can't show up angry because they uh, won't let you be angry. And that is such a problem to, to think that you can't be heard if you're angry. That is, you know, just another symptom of, of the fragility with which so many of my colleagues who fit my profile deal with this stuff. What was it that got you to this place? I mean, in looking at some of your articles, listening to your interviews, you're much more comfortable talking about this now. I don't, I think that, as you said, partly comes of age and experience, but were there, and also you had a, a support network. What other factors came into play that got you to a place where, okay, it's time to say it out loud and, and to keep saying it out loud. So it's interesting when um, one of the first questions, you know, you asked about, you know, when did you notice the isms? And I mentioned that starting off that I didn't notice it right away. I hadn't put it together. So my response now is going to be opposite of that. You know how you kick a dog too long enough and then the dog is going to, you know, like try to fight back. Mm -hmm you know, bite you or whatever. It's like, yeah, enough is enough. A enough is enough. Like when you have seen it, not just, and here's my compassion again. I see it happening to other people and I'm like, it's one thing to do it to me. Now you're doing it to somebody else. Like enough is enough. Let's stop this. You know, and then when there are other people who don't speak up and they just leave, that doesn't resolve the problem it eliminates the problem for that person or those persons, but the problem still exists. You know, the sexism still exists, the racism still exists, the, the fact that I'm in a particular socioeconomic status because we own this or whatever, you know, and you don't, it still exists. You know, your, your voice doesn't matter as much because you might have been born impoverished. You know, whereas I was born with a silver spoon, so I've always had to have people listen to me. It doesn't erase any of that. And so I guess when I saw enough, I felt like I should say something. Like, I don't, I remember saying, I don't want to operate in fear. I don't want to work where I have to be fearful all the time. And then it got to the point where I saw people being shut up shut down and i was like i don't think that's right i don't think that's right and before i knew it i was like oh that's not nice <laughs> I'm just, right <laughs> i've seen the thermometer like go up getting hotter and hotter until finally the the, the top bursts off and you say that's it i've had enough yeah. it's i see things and, and i've been very conscious about being aware and using my voice uh with with more strength and conviction, conviction over the years. But 
but it was a long time coming for sure. One example is in the just the, the comfort that a lot of us have in being sexist. Let's just talk about that for a minute. So when you're, you're talking to a guy here and I have a lot of cringeworthy moments in my past that I wake up and go, holy, did I really say that? Okay, I said it, I own it. So, you know, this is not me, you know, declaring myself uh, free from those sins by any stretch. But as you, if you really start to pay attention, what strikes me is just how comfortably we come by sexism, just how casual, like it's so woven into our view of the world, our ability to say, to shut down a woman in a meeting and elevate a man, we just come by it so naturally. I saw it actually in a, in a countywide board meeting here among our library system, where the executive director was a woman, great ideas, and the advisory board that I happen to be a part of uh, was fascinating to watch the men on this board com consistently dismiss her. It was shocking. And it being a somewhat political body, and I was new to the environment, I remember walking out feeling like, ah, oh, it was a missed opportunity for me. This was years ago. And uh, I, I sometimes think back to if I had just turned to the old white guy next to me, being a you know, younger white guy, if I had said something, I struggle with that. I would have definitely gotten under his collar. What would that signal have been to the executive director? I don't know. I don't know what I would have done. I've just, uh, I struggle with that a little bit. But what, what would you have lost? Uh, I don't yeah. think anything. It could have cost you something. Um, in, that, in that context, no, it would not have no. cost me much. It was a volunteer position. Ah, <laughs> Maybe I would have been uh, invited out of that advisory committee. Yeah. And that's, that's the problem. I wouldn't have lost anything. I would have gained a little more self-respect looking back. And that was, you know, a missed opportunity for me. And you're right, but it's a good question though. And I think it's one that maybe enough of us don't ask, or not enough of us ask of ourselves, which is what I really lose here by speaking up. And yeah. it's a shame that I'm in my, you know, I'm in my forties now. And this ability to be more comfortable talking about these issues came very late in my life relative to what I think my kids are going to experience. They're much more comfortable talking about this. Yes, I yes. Think, I think it's really interesting. But let me ask you something. You know, we're struggling with this a little bit now. I have three kids. They're in a public school district that's 87% white. And they're seeing racism. They're seeing sexism, homophobia out on the, you know, the webosphere, as I tease my kids. They think I'm old, so I like to call the internet different words. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fascinating. They see it. I mean, they see it, both the subtle stuff that I, I was talking about and the overt stuff. I got to admit, I don't, I don't know what to do about it. I, I don't know. Like I'm a parent in the community. I'm running for school board. <laughs> ah. So uh, do I, you know, do I come out hard on this stuff? Do I create a bubble for my kids? It, it's a struggle, but they're watching. And so at some point, I'll probably have to find my own enough's enough. Yeah. And, and Tracy, I, I really, I'm asking you because white guy, white kids who are watching other white kids be racist and homophobic, not to individuals. So then why but, should you care? Right? Well, that's, yeah. So <laughs> that's not my question though. Um, I know why I should care, but I, what I struggle with is what should I do about it? Yeah. Cause I've got you know, these other kids who are, who are not pointing this at any one individual. I suppose I'd like to think if I saw it in the moment, I would call it out. But right. if it's just kids floating the N word out on social or being homophobic, I'm not sure I'm equipped to do something with that. Yeah. 
That, that's a tough um, place to be in. And when I said, why should you care? You know, that's the question that others, you know, mm. might ask of you, not necessarily what you would ask of yourself, just based on conversations that we've had. Right. But that that's a tough place to be in. Um, and recently, I had a conversation with somebody about something similar. And I talked about what is called white solidarity. And that's mm. why I said, you know, why should you care? And so um, that is a section of a chapter in the book that I'd read called White Fragility. And so I was explaining white solidarity, how, you know, you, you see things that are not right, but you're afraid to stand up or you don't know. And sometimes if you stand up, you actually lose things or you lose um, relationships with people or lose opportunities with people later, you know, when something comes up instead of thinking of you or reaching out to you, they decide not to because you're going to cause problems because you're going to call them out, you know, on something. And so that's what I found that a lot of colleagues go through. They may pull you to the side or want to walk with you outside and tell you, look, I saw what happened and I don't like it. And then I'm faced with, do I say that I'm so disappointed in you that you had to pull me outside? Or do I say, thank you for feeling that way? Like I, I'm stuck, I don't know. And so um, there's no easy answer for that question, but I do know this, that it cannot be ignored. You cannot let it continue to happen, but you also can't stomp in and say, stop this. You have to stop this right now. We have to find some way to gently say initially, you know, hey, that's not nice. You know, you shouldn't do that. They're, they're a person too, you know, they, they have feelings too and continuously say it. And that's really hard for kids because, you know, bullying could result from that, mm -hmm. but, you know, they can indicate in maybe some other way that they're not down with that. They don't appreciate that, you know, to walk away and bring it to someone's attention, you know, with without, you know, getting themselves in trouble. But the adults, you know, they may have to address it in a different way, you know, maybe go to the teacher or administration and say, hey, you know, my kids are telling me that this is happening. I don't want them to um, catch any backlash from it, but you might want to watch this and then give, you know, specific examples of things that were said. Surprisingly, sometimes those uh, in administration know that it's happening, but they too don't know how to handle it mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. don't know what to say or do to try to make it stop. And there are times when situations go on like that for 20, 30 years. Yeah. And then not yeah. until something really, really bad and somebody stands up and says something really, really loudly, mm -hmm. will they act? And so, well, yeah, you're right. I mean, this, to be in. it's a tough one because, you know, we, we obviously think about our kids and we're in the moment thinking about their safety, but, but also we, we do have to think, and I'm not just talking about my own situation. I'm talking about you know, parents, adults who care about kids, educators general, as well. Yeah. You're thinking about the, the here and the now and preserving their their innocence in some ways their safety and security but as someone pointed out to me if you're a black brown um, asian pacific islander descent native american indigenous you don't enjoy the same level of innocence as a child you never have and that's that's going back 
hundreds of years. We talked in a prior podcast about the talk that parents have with their kids when they get their driver's license. Totally different talk for a white kid than for a black kid. And I got to tell you, I, I had that conversation with my son, who's still a, a ways yet from getting his license, but I needed him to, to know that there are different talks being had uh, based on your skin tone. What's troubling is that those talks have to happen, but also that just there's just such a lack of awareness about it. And I don't, I don't know if it's, if it's conscious white solidarity or just a, or maybe an unconscious effort to, to learn about that kind of stuff. I see it a lot though in, in our community. It's, it's fascinating. I had, a, I had a community member message me over Facebook, really asking me to protect our students from transgender kids and to ensure protect that we don't have them uh, from transgender. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. 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 And uh, I mean, they're, they're out there looking for, for a boogeyman that just doesn't exist. She also in that same posting, and it stayed with me, you know, was asking about how do we ensure that critical race theory doesn't find its way into our curriculum and that we're not uh, talking about Black Lives Matter. Wow. But I'm really troubled by it. I, I, in turn, what I want to- What is her fear? I didn't ask. Well, her fear, I don't know. I, I think her fear is embedded in bias, in racism, in, I, I actually, I don't know. I don't want to speak for her. I can only speculate. Yeah. But I also, I don't want to engage her. I don't know. I feel- I feel conflicted about that because yeah. I don't want to give her the airtime. Yeah. I don't want to, you know, feed her oxygen that can light yeah. that fire yeah. even brighter. And yet by not engaging, am I, you know, ex exhibiting some level of solidarity? It's a tough one. So I came out with a post that was a little more generic about the importance of cultural competence in our instruction and how, even if we have 13% non-white students, we have to celebrate that diversity, ensure that we have representation in our materials. That was as far as I was ready to go because I felt like mm, I could really light her up and I don't want to do that. Yeah. God, what yeah. a world we're in. It's amazing. It's amazing. People are just naming themselves. Hey, dear Jim, I'm a racist. Nice to know you. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. But you, that's not new to you though, is it? it it's not new. And yeah, I, I struggle with having to always explain things like that. Like, you know, we, we talk about, you know, incidences with the police and then, you know, you may have a white colleague that, you know, will say, well, my daughter, you know, too, or my son too had that. And then it just kind of makes the conversation in because it's not the same. And it's almost like with the pandemic, you know, there are some you know, people who felt like it was fake, you know, it's made up. They're just making this up until they actually got the coronavirus. And then it probably made sense. But in this case, they're never going to turn black and experience the same thing. The closest that they may come to, you know, being a person of color will be being with someone at the time that they are mistreated. And we see things from religious leaders locally and nationally who are saying that, you know, if you just comply with the police or if you just comply, period, then you'll be okay. I had a situation and I just complied and it was fine. And it was like, okay, you're an educated person. Look at the data. You know, you can comply 
And just because you look a particular way, you can then be treated as if you haven't complied. And then it can be documented that you didn't comply when you really did. You know, how do you explain that away? It's disbelief, like it, it didn't happen. And then that's when the anger sets in and then nobody wants to listen. But you just don't know what else to say or do. And you, you kind of resolve to say, I, I can only show you if something happens. I can't continue to have this conversation with you because eventually I'm not going to want to talk to you at all because I don't know how you are going to treat me when something goes wrong or when uh, there's a very uh, difficult situation or conversation to be had. Like then I'm questioning, do you really care about me? You know, and then if you're an educator, I'm questioning whether you're doing right by the children mm -hmm. who are mm -hmm. individuals of color. Right. You know, I'm like, mm. there was a post many years ago by a teacher in our district. And I don't even know if that teacher is still in our district, but it was it had to do about, um, uh, you know, refugees and um, immigrants and things like that. And she had a problem with it. And I knew that she taught it at a school that had a lot of immigrant students you know, uh, more than the other schools. And I had to comment, like you are talking about children who may be sitting in your class right now. So I'm concerned about how you are treating those kids, how you are educating those kids. Because based on your comments, you're probably not doing right by them. But here's the crazy thing. They might be treating those kids like all the other kids, but their political views are still the same. How can you separate the two then? Are you are you just throwing out rhetoric? You know, is it that you really believe that when your actions don't necessarily show that? Or are you mistreating those kids and nobody's caught you yet? That's a tough one. You've had to deal with that your whole life. I mean, you have to, and that's the, boy, there's so much to think about here. I, I'm consciously and specifically walking towards these issues because I just felt the need to, to address them, but I get to do it almost as a tourist. And I just want to acknowledge that. Um, yeah, that's an interesting way to describe it, but yeah, as a tourist. So yeah. I went to a, you know, I went to Black Lives Matter uh, demonstration uh, in Wilkes-Barre, brought my kids, two of my kids. We had the signs, we had the chants, we, uh, we knelt or we laid on our stomachs for eight minutes uh, in 48 seconds, almost nine minutes. And then the, the conversation on the way home was about how we get to go home and have a, an ordinary dinner conversation that evening about weather, sports, whatever summer camp was coming up. And that's just a different conversation than you get to have yeah. uh, when you go home. It's a different conversation and it's also a different level of anxiety. Mm. I have a brother who's a year younger than I am. And so, you know, when things were, you know, very, uh, well, I would say more hostile here than it is now. Um, and he lives in Texas. He's, re uh, he's younger than I am, but he's retired uh, military. He still teaches military courses though. 
at a college. And so he, he often drives here. And I remember my dad saying, now you need to be careful as you're driving around because you have those out of state tags. And so you're, you have out of state tags and you are a black man. So that's placing a target on your back. And I was like, whoa, that just gave me a new level of anxiety. Like, so now all night I'm thinking like, did he, has he not called? Is he not responding? Is he not coming home? Like what has happened? Has someone pulled him over? Did, did are we waiting to hear from the police? And, and, and that just gave me the anxiety that my parents have had for a while, you know? And I'm like, gosh, you have to think like that. And then I'm saying, okay, so if you're going out with your friends, you know, you call me, it doesn't matter if it's three o'clock or four o'clock, I'll answer. And right, I'm like, I'm, right. I'm in this new place here. Not everybody has had that experience. You know, parents worry about children all the time. And I don't have children of my own. But to worry about your son in a different way, you know, to worry about your brother in a different way. I think that gave me more angst than when he was over in Iraq in the war. You know, mm. it was like, oh, fourth infantry. Fourth Infantry Division. That's him. Let's see what's happening. Let's see what's happening. Um, but then you got relief, you know, not right. long after you heard from the family readiness team or something, or mm -hmm. he would send you an email or give you a call. But the other piece is constant. It is constant. Every time that he comes, I'm worried. I'm like, will you fly this time? You know, we'll pick <laughs> you up, you know, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a little different. I'm going to tell you something else too that I did not anticipate. Um, I can't remember if it was the time um, right after the Ahmaud Arbery case or if it was George Floyd. They kind of just blend together. And what's really crazy is that I try not to follow them. I don't want to, I don't want to ingest that. I don't want to hear what people around me are saying because I fear that they may disappoint me because of their stance on it. So I try to block out some of it. So I don't have the times of those events etched in my head like, you know, some friends of mine or coworkers may have. But there was one white female teacher. She was a current teacher at the time. And then there was one white female retired teacher. And this is from our district at the time who reached out or who made statements on social media regarding the case to express their solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement, to talk about the wrongs that they saw or whatever. And then one, at least maybe both, participated in a march that occurred here. To my surprise later, she sent a message to me and another retired coworker, but that she worked with, um, who's an African-American female, and another who's an African-American female who also happens to be a superintendent in a district that we, who, you know, we work together. And she expressed to us that she had gotten so much backlash because she participated in the march and because of her stance on the situation. I was floored. I was floored. It's nothing that she wanted us to do, but she wanted us to know. And I'm thinking, how incredibly brave of you to have done that and then to maintain 
your stance and your opinions and continue to post when you're catching that black backlash. But then the other part of me was, that's the crap we get all the time, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's where I thought you were going, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what we get all the time, but I felt really, really bad for her. Well, for them, because both expressed it, you know, um, one directly and one indirectly on social media, but they were both catching backlash for their compassion for what has happened, for their disgust about what happened. I don't understand that. And and they won't share from whom they've gotten that. And I'm glad that they didn't because I feel like I would have to unfriend people. I would have to disassociate myself from people. Mm -hmm. And then my circle would be very, very small. I just don't know about that. I, I don't know. You know, they can say things like that and still work with you and act as if they really care about you. But as some would say, when the hits the fan, mm -hmm. they really don't. They really don't. They're quiet or they're disgusted because you should have handled it differently because they don't have the same experience. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard to sympathize or empathize with someone whose experience or challenges are different from yours. But as educators, we should be a little more empathetic. Yeah, one would think. Do you think that the, the women who you know, made those posts and received the backlash, do you get the sense they regret having done it? I think one, I felt like she might have regretted it a little bit. She was still passionate about it. The other was disappointed and very caught off guard like I was about it. She didn't, I don't think she regretted doing it. I, I think she was very, very disappointed and upset that they, as the kids would say, came for her like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I felt yeah. bad for her, you know, because when I mentioned, you know, early, like, why, why do you care? Like, it's not her fight, but yet it is. But it is. It's the it? fight for I mean, humanity. It's, it's humanity's fight. fight. It really is. It shouldn't be your work alone. And it, and it's, it's not my fight. I, I'm struggling with this. Forgive me, uh, because I don't intentionally group all of these things together. But, you know, uh, racism and sexism and homophobia, bias against the LGBTQ community, they're, they're different communities, but they all experience hate on some form or another. And that, that's, the, that's the only connective thread, uh, which is why I bring it up. It's interesting to me, though, that being a white, straight man, I don't have a, I don't have skin in the game, pardon the pun, on any of those fronts. And yet I just get so angry and frustrated and disappointed when I just see the, the casual racism, the casual sexism, the casual homophobia. And I guess it comes back to your question, why should you care? That is the question. I mean, why should I care? Because my kids are watching. Yeah. My kids are, yeah. my kids are watching. Yeah. And, yeah. and aren't all our kids watching us? Yeah. Boy, What's interesting is, is they are different, but they are the same and that we don't value those who are different from us. And we have to elevate ourselves above anyone who's different from us. That's what we're doing to make ourselves more important. That's what we're doing, um, you know, to make us feel better about ourselves. And that's just highlighting our own deficiencies, whether we know it or not. 
And so I've often said to people, you know, you need to be careful about those who seem like they're okay with persons of color, but are disgusted by someone who is lesbian, bisexual, you know, gay, whatever you call it. Like you need to be careful about that because that's a classic sign that they probably don't care about you as much as well, you know? Yeah. Like that, it's the difference, that's the issue. And I don't know, my stance is, and this may be generalizing it too much or simplify, simplifying it a little too much. There is no reason I need to come to work to talk about my sex life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that's, there's no reason. And so that's real, or my sexual preference. There's, there's really no reason. So then why should it come up any other time? Yeah, it's, it, there, there will come a time, hopefully, with race, with sexual identity, with sexual preference, that it becomes a non-issue. It comes to the point where um, it doesn't, it, it's so insignificant to how we value a human that it doesn't warrant conversation. But aren't, aren't we a long ways away from that? Yeah, I think we are a long way away from it, but I think we may be slightly closer than we were, say, 20, 30 years ago, if nothing more, but we are more tolerant of things or we have learned to pretend to be more tolerant <laughs> of things um, now because it's so taboo and because they know that we have developed a cancel, a cancel you know, society, like we will cancel you out. Mm. You know, we will say, no, we're not going to uh, do business with you. No, we're not going to buy from you. We will just shut it down or we will try and make you very, very uncomfortable. I don't really subscribe to that totally because there are other people that end up suffering unintentionally you know, from doing that. So the same people that you're fighting for, you end up hurting in some mm. instances. Yeah, that's But true. I do understand why, because something needs to be done. Something has to be done to show that you can't just say or do anything that you want and hurt people and you continue to make money off of those same people yeah. or on the backs of the people that you hurt. Let me ask you this then, uh, as we start to wind down just a little bit. You started to shift a little bit in from sharing with me and, and allowing me to also share out some of the frustrations, the challenges, the things that make us uncomfortable. But I'm picking up a sense of hope in something you just said. Yes. And over the last 20 years, but also I think in some ways, even in a more acute way over the last 12 months, I, I actually, for all that we have a lot of stress and anxiety as a shared culture, I'm starting to pick up on some hope in our young people, the ability to have these conversations, the ability to call it out, and actually the ability to learn from mentors like you. So, you know, it's easier for me to have hope because I have privilege. So, so tell me, if you don't mind, like what's giving you hope right now? I think because I'm a believer that it, it doesn't make sense to say that I'm a, uh, I'm Christian, that I'm a believer without believing that there's a way to fix societal ills. I'm a realist. I know that everything isn't going to be fixed. Like, bloop. you know, I, I know it requires work. I know that there's some things that have to be done. Like you have to, you know, use some elbow grease to make it done. But I'm hopeful. And I think mainly because of my faith 
that things will not always be the same. That's like what, what we're taught, what we believe in wholeheartedly. And so if that is my belief, then even though things around me may be burning down, you know, I still have that glimmer of hope and that allows me an opportunity to speak that hope and work toward you know, that change and then helping to get people to join me in being hopeful. You know, I'm not about sitting around and just talking about the problems and just, you know, circling about how awful things are. We can talk and I'm a good listener, but then at the end of it, I, I want to list some things that need to be done, some things that we can move on. And so if I can grab a few people who think like me or someone who could potentially think like me and we can start working to make change, you know, to bring some things together, then that increases my hope. And then I'm looking at these children who, unlike us, feel free to say whatever's on their minds, they are free to think differently than we thought. They are free to act differently. And that makes them more accepting and tolerant of certain things. And that gives me hope, you know, that our future is going to be better. They have more of an entrepreneurial, free thinking um, spirit than we had. And I'm, I'm thinking like, is it because of the way that we were raised? We were cautiously raised. My dad was always fearful that something might happen. So, you know, we were, we were taught to be cautious and moving. And these kids don't have that. They're not cautious. They're moving however they see fit. They're willing to take chances. They're willing to, they're more risk takers than we are. And that in itself gives me, it causes me a little bit of concern, but it, it also gives me hope for the future. I, I, don't, I, I don't think I can eloquently explain why I do have that hope, but I do, I do. Things can get bad. You know, I'm like, hey, you know, it can't get any worse. I'm waiting on my breakthrough. You know, I'm waiting for something good to happen. And I can probably go back and give many examples of, you know, how that's happened. So I feel the same way about what's going on in uh, society and the children that uh, we are raising, the children that we're educating contribute to that hope that I feel. Thank you so much for sharing that message of hope. And I think you do yourself a disservice by saying you can't eloquently express why you have hope, even in some of these dark times. I think you did a, a magnificent job articulating that the hope is derived from the freedom that our younger generation is starting to feel in expressing themselves, in naming instances where they're uncomfortable, why they're uncomfortable, and who makes them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, they would not be able to uh, have that freedom uh, that freedom to throw caution to the wind without you, without educators like you, yeah. without adults like you who have forged a path through that discomfort, found their breakthrough moment and said enough's enough, given them the language and the voice. So on behalf of the generation that comes behind me, including my own kids, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now's the point where with most conversations, 
I invite guests to ask me a question. So the conceit here is that this is Jim questions everything. And Tracy, you've heard me question a lot. <laughs> question your perspective, question my own thinking and what I should do. And, and while we didn't answer all the problems of the universe, I'm certainly smarter for having had this conversation. But do you have a question for me? So I pondered on this and I actually came up with four or five different questions. And I think that I've settled on this particular question. When you think of Mississippi, historically and present in the present, what do you think? What is your thought of Mississippi in general? Okay, I wanna speak truth, so I won't yes. think about it. I'm just gonna answer to it. Truthful. When someone says Mississippi, I think rural and I think hot uh, and I think poverty. Now, if you were to invite me to think about it, give you a carefully crafted answer, I'm sure I would come up with something different, but I want to be truthful and say, I, I think of, of climate <laughs> being hot. I think of a rural population and, uh, and I think poverty. And I can't say that I feel good about those things, but I come by it honestly. So of course, now that you've got me thinking, why do I think those things? I'm sitting here talking to Someone who has doctor in front of her name has earned advanced multiple degrees, who's a specialist in business, in education, in technology. You're all the things that my uh, seemingly biased view of Mississippi is not. I am very surprised that you didn't say one other. Black? No, but close. <laughs> close. That is one, okay. one thing that is often said, but uh, racist. You know, oh, like. Right. Yeah, wow. yeah. Most, most, you know, they think they they do think that everybody is impoverished and uneducated. And yes, they think it's hot, and it is hot. And <laughs> we talk about uh, how there's some movies that are made in the South or about the South mm, really make right. us angry because they make us look really you know, bad sometimes, like mm. um, A Time to Kill, we were like, why are they so wet? Mm. You know, why does he look like that? And I'm like, it is pretty hot. <laughs> and when it's humid, it is, but it's not quite that bad. <laughs> but it is bad. They're, they're over-dramatizing. But yeah. so interesting. I wonder why I didn't name racism. Of course, as I fall asleep tonight, thinking about all the weird things that I said in this conversation, I will probably have to think, is inside of poor because uh, i think i mentioned poverty ah. i wonder i wonder if I, that was a yeah you know like a close cousin to race yeah. racist you know because yeah. because i i don't think i have the language to try and express it but i i can't help but think there's some implicit position about racism connected to poverty yeah oh boy yeah. that's going to keep me up tonight yeah, yeah. but yeah do, do you find that that people so my answer didn't include race racist, but it seems like that's the thing that people, you've asked this question of other people. It's, uh, it feels like. <laughs> um, I have not, I have okay. not, but um, others have voluntarily told me what they thought of Mississippi. Um, mm -hmm. Not all was good, it all, especially if they come to visit. So we're, you know, on the Mississippi Gulf Coast and we tend to say it's, it's quite a bit different from other parts of Mississippi especially like from the Delta, maybe Northern parts. Uh, and others have said the same thing uh, when they get here. Oh, it's so beautiful. And I'm like, what did you think? Mm -hmm. Like, what did you think? And 
or either they would say, I didn't expect this. I expected this. Like I did not expect so much beauty. I did not expect beautiful homes. I did not even expect people to be so articulate. And then it's like, uh, hold uh, on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> hold you on. mean articulate for black? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's yes, what yes. they're really saying. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, yeah, but even in that, people don't understand that that is not a compliment that, right. um, when they say that. So yeah, we've, we've heard that. We've heard that a lot. And then what's interesting, even um, people from here or were raised here or went to school, you know, in Mississippi and they leave, they tend to wonder why those of us who are still here are still here. And it has always been a thing for me. And I told my dad uh, this is that, you know, I feel like I've been given so much. I need to give back. You know, I need to do the same thing that was done for me. I am surrounded still by a circle of people who keep me motivated, you know, who keep me encouraged about what I'm doing, who don't mind pulling, you know, my coattail to say, hey, you might want to slow down or you might want to think about that. And I think that if I just up and leave, I'm leaving hope on the table and I don't want to do that. I want to be able to help my community. I still live in the community where I grew up. I'm working on a book where I'm talking about being a caretaker for my parents. And it's really cool because there's some funny stories weaved in about them because they're really funny. And I stopped talking about the neighborhood before I even began to talk about it because I really didn't know how to describe it to someone on the outside looking in. I have a friend who will be principal of the school in my neighborhood still and the one that I actually attended. And we were having a conversation and it was like, hey, we need, you know, kids need to see people who are successful. And I was like, oh, she doesn't think anybody successful is in the neighborhood. And I started making a list of successful people that she could talk to, successful people that she could connect with, you know, as resources for her. And then I started talking to another colleague about the neighborhood. And we have impoverished to upper middle class and maybe even more in the same one, two mile radius. And people don't really understand that. And so they can even be living on the same street, but it's not like an issue for most. And so I I find that interesting because I'm still there. And even um, when I was teaching high school, the kids were like, where are you from? And then when you call out your neighborhood, they were like, oh, you really live there? And I was like, yeah, I do. And so it became a thing of pride for them because I was proud that I still live there. I still participate. I still give back. But they do tell me you live in the hood, but you're not hood. You don't know hood. (laughs) And so um, I figured out they might be true. It's just interesting how that is my truth and the truth about the neighborhood. And yet you remained, and I see why you remain, you know, it's, it's sort of akin to why you remain in education because you feel this, or at least I hear in you, this feeling of I've earned a seat at this table more times than I care to count. My table happens to be the community I live in, the school district I work for and the kids I serve, you know, by establishing your place at that table, you've just uh, 
much as you've done today, you've, you've just given voice. You've given voice to a lot of things. You know, we've talked about pain and anger, but we've also talked about compassion and perhaps most importantly about hope. And I think that people see in you, I can only imagine that people see in you someone who grew up here, chose to stay here and became very successful here. And if ever there was an indicator of what hope looks like, it's in that journey that you undertook to become an educator and a caretaker. I hope everyone gets at least half of what I got out of this conversation. It's been a real joy to talk to you. And I'm just excited to stay connected and to be in your world. And someday I'm getting myself to Mississippi. I'll tell you that. Yes, you have to come. (laughs) And I'll take you out to dinner. I'd be delighted. I'd be delighted. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it.